You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we will be walking through the Psalms in the summer. This is kind of our custom. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal for us. And so I want to invite you to Psalm 6. That is, we refer to all of the Psalms as the Psalms, uh, or we would say this is the sixth Psalm or Psalm 6. Uh, it's not necessarily a chapter, but instead, it's not like the sixth chapter in the book of Psalms. It's more of, this is an anthology, a collection, a library, if you will, of poetry and hymnody, if you want to use that word, and psalms and songs that would have been, as we say, it would have been the hymn book, the, the music, and even the, the poetry, the nursery rhymes, if you will, of Jesus. That's why Jesus and the New Testament quote the psalms more than they quote any other books of the Bible, and they refer back to them, and so we're invited to take a trek through them. We will be in the sixth psalm. Now, we've done this before. You'll find on our website at SiouxFallsConnection.com or even uh, on the iTunes store, you'll find a podcast that you'll see every summer we commit to doing this, and so what we find here is something amazing, and uh, we're going to read Psalm chapter six, and the way I'll summarize our time together um, at least walking through the Psalms, is the same way I would, I would explain the prayer of Jesus. That is, Jesus, even from the cross, quoted Psalm 22. Even in the hour of his greatest distress, as, he, as we, would, we find the New Testament tells us, as he bore the weight of God's wrath and all the weight of our sin on the cross, what was the thing that came to mind? What was the, let's say, what was the tune he was humming in his head at the worst possible moment? It was Psalm 22. And so, as you will be bombarded, I am sure, this summer and every summer, with what we would call the songs of the summer, that will be, and you know this, the, the good formula for pop music is that it's, it, it really straddles the line between catchy and brain-numbingly annoying, right? And the most catchy songs, you know this, become annoying. And, and sometimes the first time you hear something that's annoying, you're like, shoot, it's in my head. I mean, you can't, you can't get rid of it. And, and, so, and, and, and artists know this, and they drop these kinds of songs. They release these kinds of albums in the summer, songs of the summer. And so what I hope for is that like Jesus, who was humming the words of the psalms, even in the hour of greatest need, that the songs of the summer, the things that we would hum, the words that would be catchy, let's say the hooks that you wake up in the morning humming, whistling, singing in the shower, are actually the language, the inspired language of poetry that gives us a glimpse into the heart of God. And so my hope is that this summer you won't just be humming in the back of your head like something from, I don't know, what's, I don't know what's cool right now, I'm not that cool. Drake or whatever the song of the summer is, right? Post Malone, whatever, whatever's going on, Katy Perry. I don't know, the songs of the summer for us are Kids Bop. <laughs> I commend them to you. Also catchy and annoying. And my hope is that the songs, the words, the tunes that would be humming in the shower that would be reverberating in our deepest parts of our consciousness would be the words that cry out to God and teach us who God is. So beginning in the first verse of Psalm 6, I want to read to you the caption that would have originally been included in the Psalms, the, the direction, as it were, for the, this, the use of this poetic psalm, and then we're going to read it together. 
titled, O Lord, Deliver My Life, to the choir master with stringed instruments according to the Shimoneth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears, I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is God's word. My prayer is that it becomes more than just ink on a page, but it becomes the very words of God for the gathered people of God. I want you, and this will seem strange, I want you to get good at feeling bad. I want you to get good at feeling bad. I want you to get really, really, really good at it. And the Psalms, this one in particular, but the Psalms as a whole and entirety of the Bible is not the avoidance of feeling misery, but instead it is the experience of confidence in the Lord in spite of misery. And we must admit then that we regularly resist sadness and seriousness. Think of it this way. When you try to capture a moment and you want to remember it via the means of photograph, what do you do? And when you tell someone to pose for a photograph, what do you do? Now this is a relatively new thing, but you ought to ask yourself, why do we smile in photographs? Now at the turn of the century, if someone were to photograph you and they were going to capture a moment, right? we know that one of the causes for not smiling in older photographs as they, as they were developing at the turn of the century is that no one, hear me, can hold a smile for that long. The exposure time of the first, the first cameras were, were like any, you know, for several minutes. And before that, the exposure time of, say, an artist painting your portrait would have been even much longer. And so now we're able to capture, Kodak has revolutionized this in the 20th century, we're able to capture moments such that now we'll say, say cheese, smile. We're going to capture this moment. And what I want you to realize is that what's really going on there is that we are fighting as hard as we can to remember particular moments in our life with anything other than happiness. And as a result, we are terrible at feeling bad. I mean, ask yourself this, why do you smile in picture? And if at the turn of the century, think about this, it wasn't possible to hold a smile that long. Let me rephrase that. Think on that. 
you weren't made to smile that long. You weren't made to smile that long. It'd be like saying that we're going to take a photo of you underwater. Because if you can't do it fast, if you can't capture that moment quickly, it won't work. Why? You weren't made to be underwater. And capturing a photo of yourself underwater is a one-off. In the same way, I want to convince you, capturing a photo of of yourself smiling is a one-off. And it might be more than you think, shrinking your capacity to feel sorrow and sadness. I want you to get good at feeling bad. Now, I want you already to feel how countercultural that is. Now, we saw this. I encourage you. Uh, we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes together, a book of sorrow, and we come to find out that, that like, the greatest sorrows in life aren't actually getting what you want, or excuse me, not, not getting what you want, but the greatest sorrows are when you do get what you want and you realize how terribly unsatisfying it is. And so, as we walk through the book of Ecclesiastes, I said this regularly, like, I want to invite you into feeling misery about your life on earth. The words the author of Ecclesiastes was used is under the sun. I want you to be sad about your life under the sun so that you will experience joy about your life beyond it. I want to invite you into a sorrow of this life. I want you to invite you into an intentional sadness about this life under the sun because I want you to begin to consider the possibility of a greater eternal joy beyond the sun. You weren't made to smile. Now some of you get excited. You like Mark Twain. He says, a photograph is the most important document. And there is nothing more damning to go down to posterity than a silly, foolish smile caught and fixed forever. Now for you cynics, you love that, right? And even Mark Twain, only, the only character he ever described as like a happy person was Huckleberry Finn, and he described him as a person with a, a toothy smile. The Psalms, though, as Calvin would write, actually capture the very soul of a human. They can incite us to lift up our hearts to God and move us to enthusiasm. Ardor is the word he uses in exalting and invoking praise to the glory of the name of God. And so the Psalms are the hymn book of Jesus. They're the language of life. Now they're traditionally broken in uh, to different sections. They're ordered by theme, language, time of appearance. And so, for example, the first few volumes, you'd say there's five volumes or books in the Psalms that are roughly 30 to 40 verses or 30 to 40 Psalms apiece. The, the first three are, are usually from the the disappointing era of the Davidic covenant kingdom. That is, the good old days that that were so good they didn't last, right? Like the King David days when, when things were great. And again, they were so great that they didn't last. You can't smile forever. Are outlined in the first three volumes. Whereas starting about Psalm 90, the last two volumes, the two books of the Psalms, are, are more about like a, a calling out and a worshiping God that he would restore this covenant kingdom. And as a result, they, they really span the entirety of the human experience. That's why I said Calvin called them like the anatomy of the soul. They're, it's a mirror for how you experience the world. But here's what I would say. This is my contemporary summary of the Psalms, and I want to invite you to consider this summer. The Psalms are the Bible's guide to self-expression. That's important. 
because we are currently living in, in, a, in a highly individualistic culture that's, that utterly exalts and worships and idolizes self-expression. It's the most important thing. The most important thing is that you don't let anything inside, right? There's, you've got to get it out. You've got to express it. And so that highly individualistic uh, sentiment, I would say, ultimately exalts the human and your individual experience and says you are autonomous. And what really matters is that you express yourself. You get it out, that you, you impose your view of the world onto the world. Now that, that's, that's great. Autonomy is great as long as you're the only human on earth. But what happens when your autonomy, literally auton, autonomos, the law of self, when your laws and your rules of the world clashes with my autonomy? What if I express something and, and it's the highest good and it's in contradiction to the way that you express something? My laws of living, my autonomos and your autonomos, what happens when they clash? And here's the problem. We don't know what to do with it, do we? We have no clue, right? Like our, our current, our, I would even, you see this everywhere you look. In your family, you see this in the political sphere right now. Right, the way I heard one author say it is like right now, if like the parable of the prodigal son, the rebellious son, and, and the self-righteous rule-following son, like imagine that story with no father. That's our political milieu right now. That's it. Like it's like it's two rivaled sons, and this is what's right, this is what's right, and it's like, well, who's going to decide? And, and, and both sides are going autonomos. I, am, I make law. What's most important is my experience. But notice, the psalm does not, they do not shy away from the expression of the human experience. They do not deny the human experience, but instead they give us a guide of how to understand it and how to express it rightly. That our expressions of self are ultimately to be, that they're gifts of God. But therefore, they're good gifts that are in order. They, they come down from the Father of lights, and therefore they reflect His image. They reflect the way that He has ordered things to work. The psalm help us not to repress self-expression, but to guide it. Think of it this way. If you are perfect and righteous, then self-expression is awesome. It's great. Please express your perfection and your righteousness. But you see the assumption being made in self-expression, don't you? Your perfection. Your righteousness, it assumes you're not sinful. And that's a problem. Because if you're sinful, like me, then what naturally will flow out of you? What will be your expression or assertion of self? Get it? And the pendulum swung in the other way. And, and we have an opportunity as we look into God's Word to begin to speak and empathize with that longing deep in the souls of our culture to express what's down in the depths of our soul, but also to say, no, that, that actually won't help you. And your deepest, best self-expression ultimately is an expression of sinfulness. But the Lord has given us words to express what is right and true, to guide what is really meaningful and value, valuable. And so I want you to be good get good at feeling bad, expressing awful things. And you'll, even as we read this, you, you saw there was, there was two main parts of this, an invitation into sorrow, an invitation into suffering. Now, with this particular song, the meaning of this particular song really depends on what words and phrases that you give the most weight. 
So think of it this way. In the first few verses, verses 1 through 3, it's a penitential psalm. And so it's one of the seven penitential psalms. Uh, you can look those up. There's, there's a list of them. And, and so they're, they're, they're ultimately a, a feeling of humility and the weight of God's judgment on our sin. But then, beginning in verse 4, about verse 4 through 7, it's, it becomes a, a lament over sickness. And there's a desperate illness or a, a, a physical weight that's being felt. And then a petition for deliverance out of it. So if you spend most of your time in the first three verses then you'll see this, well, this is a psalm of penitence, a petition for God's grace and his mercy. But the verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, it's a, it's a petition for physical restoration. But verses 7 through 10, it's a, there's apparently an implied persecution from enemies. And so then therefore he concludes by addressing his foes with a, an expression of confidence. Victory even. So which is it? Which is it? Is this a song and a poem for the sinful? Is this a poem for the physically ill? Or is this a declaration of victory over our enemies? Is this a song for the sinful? Is this a poem for the physically ill? Or is this a declaration of victory over our enemies? And my answer to you is this. Yes! Yes! And in deep affliction, this psalmist appeals to God's mercy for relief. Relief from wrath and punishment and discipline that would otherwise crush him. But then, sure of being heard, sure of God's gracious answer in his nature, he triumphantly rebukes, he threatens, he taunts his enemies. So I'm going to walk through this. He is two different things. He is both beat down in the first seven verses and... He is defiant toward his enemies. Don't miss the and. He is beat down and defiant towards his foes. So as we zoom in on this, look, just, look what just happened. He starts with saying how awful things are, and then he starts talking about how victorious he will surely be. Now this is important. About half of you in the room will really gravitate towards the first seven verses of sadness and sorrow. And about half of you will really gravitate towards the last several verses, verses 8, 9, and 10. A declaration of victory and joyful triumph, right? And if you're in this, you know which way you probably lean. Because notice, this song, at least for the first part, is strangely enough, it's, it's, it's like a Johnny Cash song, man. It's like Eric Clapton's Tears in Heavens, right? This is like Muddy Waters' Delta Blues. It's bad. It's awful. The weight of sorrow on this person. But then the last few verses, dare I say, it turns all smash mouth, Right? We're going to win! Like, I get knocked down. I mean, it's like... And there's this amalgamation of these two things. A smash-up, if you will. And don't miss that. This is important for us. In this life, we hold intention, the experience of great sorrow and loss, where the only guarantee is death. But yet, because of who God is, we hold tightly to an assured victory and triumph. It's not one or the other, so don't miss that. This probably offends you. This probably pulls you out from your tendency. And that's especially important. Maybe for for many of you, like, David's afflicted here. He's afflicted. And I know for many of you, there's, there's 
you probably disdain his experience in the first seven verses, right? Seriously, David, cheer up. Get over it. And that's probably how you see the world. But don't miss that. If you disdain that experience of sorrow, if you think it's somehow unchristian or it's a a feeling to be looked down upon, then you have rejected the character and nature of God Himself. One of the worst heresies that grips so-called Christians is that we can live free from pain. It's what we would refer to now as, in its fullest expression, a prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Namely, that if you'll just believe hard enough, if you'll just know and encounter God deeply enough, you will not, you'll experience health, wealth, and happiness. You'll be delivered from all suffering. And notice, that's, that's a heresy that only works when you're on the upper oppressive side of a society. Right? Like that, that doesn't work anywhere else. You can't go to a person who's a victim of, of great injustice and say, you just need to believe more. Why do I say that? Because look at Jesus. You're going to stand there with your prosperity gospel and look at Jesus and go, Jesus, stop crying out to God with all your sorrow and suffering and pain. Get over it. This is about happiness and joy. Did you get this? You may, and so here's what I would say. This, I want to speak to some of the people in the room that maybe you were raised in a Christian culture. Maybe you were raised in a church. If you weren't, God bless you. I'm going to talk about some baggage that you're going to think is crazy. But if you were raised in a Christian context, if, you're, if, you're, if you were raised in more of a high church or Catholic, Episcopalian, or Lutheran, the language of lament here at the beginning you're probably familiar with. The penitence that, that we would say is, the, and the penance that we're called to in, in, in that kind of a tradition is, is literally, I would say, again, a penitentiary. And so some of you know that. You know that language. And you're good at it. And you need to hear from verse 8 on, that's not where you stay. That's only half the story. The crucified Jesus bleeding for you is only half the story. The empty tomb is the final word. And so for some of you in a high, like you, you, you're like, yeah, yeah, I'm so, it's awful. I'm terrible. My sin is terrible. My, my condition is awful. I want to be like, cool. That's half the story. I want you to hear the good news of God's victory. But maybe if you're on the other side, maybe you were raised in, in, a, in a more, I would say, more independent or, or congregational, we we'll call low church background. Like those first seven verses freak you out, right? Like, why, why, Everybody's sad. <laughs> right? Like, you're like, why is this so sad? And you're, and, you, and, and, and you're singing in back of your heads, to be happy in Jesus. Right? Like, like you're, you're just going like, why are we wasting time on sadness? And I want to say to you, yeah, yeah, the, the victory in the empty grave is great, but it's only victorious from the pain, torture, betrayal, and bleeding death of Jesus. You don't, you don't get one without the other. And so here's the gospel, as we see here, as a, this is like a preview of the gospel, it should be an equal opportunity offender. And so if you come in the room, and this is what I would say, is like, if you come in the room this morning and like, you're really, really happy about the world and you're happy about your life here on earth, I hope this starts to like wrench this out of your hands, doesn't it? You feel it like peeling your superficial happiness out of your hand. But on the other hand, if you come in, you have a deep sorrow. You have a deep sadness because of your life here 
on earth. Did you, did you feel it also? Did you feel it start like, to pull your grip out? And it's not one or the other. The psalmist here is both beat down, experiencing trouble, and yet experiencing the sure grace of God through the future joy and victory that he will bring. It's not one or the other. It is both. It is certainly both. And it ought to pull you away from, and this is what I want to invite you, like, if you're really happy about your life right now, I want to invite you to realize how superficial and silly that is. But if you're really, really sad about your life right now, I want to invite you also to realize how superficial and silly that is. Neither of those is a profound truth that speaks over eternity. They both are ingredients, the backdrop through which God works. So just recognize, you, you're, you're going to be terribly, like if, if you're from one background or the other, you, or you, you kind of relate with or tend towards one or the other, you, you're going to miss out. And I would say by the authority of God's word, you are missing out on who God is and what he has called us to be and to do in the world. Think of it this way. For some of you this morning, what's the one thing, the one thing, the worst possible thing that you want more than anything else to keep a secret from these people in this room? What's the thing you are praying that no one in this room finds out about you? That if right now I vocalize it to this room, it, it would, you would feel crushed by it. For some of you, what's that, what's that hidden secret sin that you fall back into this week? That thing you want to keep a secret. Do you realize how awful it would be of me to let you leave here feeling good about that? To send you back into the penitentiary, the prison? The worst thing that I could do is to make you feel good about the thing that's killing you. It's like going to a doctor and he's like, you have cancer. Oh my goodness, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Go on. Carry on. That's not loving. That's not helpful. And that thing that you're slipping and you want to keep a secret, here's, the worst thing I could do is to make you feel good about yourself in that. The best thing I could do is to draw your attention away from that to see how good and gracious God is. The way I say it is like, I, I, I don't care about your self-esteem. I don't. I hope you have terrible self-esteem. I care about your God-esteem. I, I, like, you think you're cool. Great. You know what's awesome? In Jesus Christ, God thinks you're adopted as a son and daughter of, of, of this eternal family. That's kind of cool. And when you're, when you're sad and miserable and your self-esteem withers, you can go, well, good thing. Good thing God says something eternally true about me that's bigger than what I say. So, so don't miss what he's inviting us into, a deep sorrow but a deep victory and they're in the same psalm. And so for you, did you catch how general this is? I can give you some math nerdiness on this. 60% of the words in this psalm are found in the rest of the psalm, so it's a very general psalm. It fits into the language of all the psalms, and in some ways it, it, it's all-encompassing. And so if you come into the room and you're like, yes, I know the weight of my own sin, like the first few verses, or yes, I feel the affliction of like physical suffering, like the verse 4 through 7, or if you're like, I long for the victory of God in my life. It's, it's a psalm for all of us. We're invited into experiencing them all together. Look, we're invited to worship God who is made known to us in suffering and in victory. Suffering and victory. The cross and the empty tomb. Both. And I want to offer you joy with it. 
I want to offer you, like, there's more to, there's more to the story. Think of it this way. I want you to hate your sinful self and look to Christ for the joy only He can give. So, the first thing is I think we realize here is that we're not good at godly sorrow. Have you ever noticed even, like, because it's, it's hard to tell, is he, is he penitent because of sin or is he in, in anguish because of his physical pain? Well, here's what I would say. Have you ever, have you ever been in such physical pain that it made you, like, spir- in spiritual despair? Or have you experienced a spiritual despair or a, a sadness that made it feel like, like it made your, like your physical body hurt? You felt physically ill. And so that's what's going on here. There's a sorrow he experienced that is hurting his body, or vice versa. There's a hurt in his body that causes him to experience sorrow. And yet, in that tension, in that place where things are inexplicable for us, they're not explainable for us, I would argue that's where we're invited to worship. Whenever we find a place in the Scripture where, where we find like, well, I mean, this is weird, and we're supposed to be like sorrowful, but also joyful? Like that's, you, ought to, you ought to find yourself going, that's... I, that wrenches me in two different directions. And you know why? We're peering into the mysterious nature of God. And our response when we see those, what seem like paradoxes, they seem like contradictions, they're instead, they're an invitation to worship. If you could comprehend God, if you could comprehend and define God, then you wouldn't worship God. And so therefore, we see this tension. We're invited to see both the tension of deep suffering and yet deep Joy because of the character and grace of God. Not one to the detriment of the other. One of the other things I think we'll notice is not only is we're, we're not that really good at experiencing sorrow, but we're also not that good at having like seriousness. We're serious about sin and we are mournful. And yet we are serious about God's grace and grateful. And so the worst thing that I could do for you if you're experiencing a great deal of sorrow because of your life is to say, that's cool, go back. But also, if you come and experience a great deal of happiness because how awesome your life is, I'm going to be like, it would be awful to go, that's great, go back into that. So where does he begin? Verse 1, the poem begins, now the translators didn't do this um, uh, in some of your translations, but in the ESV you see this, the first word is what? Lord, the name of God. So here's, here's where we have a model for experiencing the character and nature of God in a broken, fallen world marred by sin. Begin by calling out the name of the Lord. Now, notice it's a, that's a, a declaration of faith because as the Lord would have introduced himself in the book of Exodus to, to introduce and reveal himself to God's people, Moses says, well, okay, you're, you're telling me to go do this thing, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Who am I going to say sent me? Like, by what authority am I even passing on orders to the king of the greatest empire in the world at that particular time. And what does the Lord say? He says, you, send the, you tell them that the I am sent you. I am. And so the ineffable name, the Yahweh, literally just means I am. It's a weird, it's a hard word to define. And, and so even Exodus and the ESV, like, it translated like, I am that I am, or I am the one who is. But don't miss what that is. To say and to call out to the God who is, is to turn from and repent of the gods that are not. So the first thing he does is he says, God who is. Don't miss the implications there. That's a call to turn from 
the God that is not. And that's what I meant. Like if you're like, no, things are awesome or things are awful in your life and you come and you're like, this is what really matters. This is what really matters. The first thing we do is you're like, actually, that's not a God. That's an idol. And it has no ability to satisfy you. If you'll turn from that false idol, that thing that will leave you enslaved, and if you will look to the Lord, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who will be. That's the first step. Call out to God, and first by confessing the idols, the gods that are not. Second thing he does here, look. Look, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me, discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. I'm, I'm wasting away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. Look what he does. He appeals to the grace of God. The first few verses, he appeals to the grace of God. Now, in order for this to resonate with you and for you to be humming this, I have to make sure you don't hum it wrong. Like every good pop song or song of the summer, the ones that are really cool, you don't really know the words. Right? Louie, Louie, oh baby. You don't know the rest of the words, but you enjoy it. So notice, like this is something powerful here. I don't want you to hum the wrong words or the wrong tune. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, now the, the most common version that we would hum, it, it goes like this. O Lord, do not rebuke me and do not discipline me. That's how this song typically, and we, and we hum off the rest of it. And that's our prayer. We just go, God, don't rebuke me. God, don't discipline me. But that isn't what the psalmist does, is it? He doesn't say, don't discipline me or don't rebuke me. He says, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. You know this. A person who does not discipline is not a father. Not at all. And the person who longs for their father to not discipline them or rebuke them is what? Terrified of their father. But that's not what he says here, is it? He doesn't say, don't punish me, don't correct me, don't discipline me, which the book of Hebrews tells us is a mark of our sonship and our daughterhood, right? He says, don't do it in anger. Don't do it in wrath. Namely, don't give me what I deserve. Don't punish me out of the punishment that, or excuse me, don't punish me in such a way that points to what I really deserve. But what does he say? Instead, be gracious to me. So he doesn't say, don't punish me, don't discipline me. And that's important for many of you. And one of the most powerful, defiant things that you could pray today is to turn that on its head and actually pray today, Lord, rebuke me. Lord, rebuke Why? Because I know that in you is victory and because you're gracious, you'll never rebuke me out of anger. You'll never rebuke me to destroy me. You'll only rebuke me to refine me. One of the greatest prayers some of you could say is, Lord, discipline me. Now think about that. If that scares you, right? And it, it does, doesn't it? If that scares you, if you're like, Lord, discipline me, then what are you saying about God? You're saying you don't believe he's good. And what do we get to say? We get to come along as Christians and say, No! I know for a fact because all the wrath of God was poured out on Christ, anything left over for me is simply for my good, for my joy, for His glory. And so one of the most defiant prayers that you and I can pray today is, Lord, discipline me because I know You're good. Lord, rebuke me. Correct me because I know it's the path to life. And so He appeals then to what? Be gracious to me. I'm troubled 
He says, my bones are troubled. So this is where we don't know if he's talking about a physical malady. This, this word bones is shown elsewhere to not really be only talking about physicality, right? Even from Genesis 2, the, the famous poem, right? The Adam and Eve come together and, and Adam's been seeing all sorts of creatures that are nothing like him and all of a sudden he's inspired and he goes, this, this woman that appears before him and he goes, ah, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now, is he really just talking about like her physiology? Some. I believe God made our bodies beautiful and lovely and he's glorified by them. But he's saying something more, right? He's like, you your frame, your figure, who you are. I, I, I'm so grateful to God for you. It's, who, it's your essence. And so he's saying, look, who I am, my frame is vexed. It's fading away. My soul's troubled. And he cries out to God. And I want to say this is one of the best places we get permission to do this. What does he say? God, how long? I love that incomplete sentence, right? It's meant to be an expression of of great passion and great enthusiasm, right? You ever been there? Like there are just no words to describe what I'm experiencing right now. And the psalmist goes, you, Lord, how long? I don't shy away from that. That isn't a statement of doubt, impugning the character of God, accusing God of doing things that he did not do. But instead, it's simply one part of this psalm that resonate, we're going to resonate with and declare both the awfulness of sin in the world and the goodness of God and his victory over it. How long? In verse 4, he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. As if to say, like, turn your ear, hear me. Look what he does then. He, after appealing to the grace of God, he appeals to the love of God. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for what? For the sake of your steadfast love. As if to say, like, Save me because I know you love me. I know you love me. Now, in a sense, this is where I think most of the psalms are good for us. They're, they're meant to be reminders, and they're meant to be like any good psalm or any song rehearsed and memorized, right? This is kind of like a, it's a prayer, and so you're like, I know you love me. I, and, and you can kind of hear him in other psalms, but especially here, hear him kind of talking to himself. Like, help me. I, I know you love me. I'm sure of it. I, I kind of don't. I kind of don't know if you love me because this is awful, but, but, but I know I love you. I, I mean, I know you love me. I know, I, know you wouldn't tr- I know you wouldn't crush me. So deliver me, save me. Why? Because I'm awesome? Because I'm good? Because I've merited it? Because I'm deserving? What does he appeal to? God, if I appeal to anything other than your love, I'm lost. And notice what he also adds to that in verse 5. He adds, he adds the finality of death. He adds this like urgency. For in death there is no remembrance of you in Sheol. Who will give you praise? Once you're dead, this is, like, there's, there's a sense in which like death is the cutoff. Something is over. There's an opportunity that's missed. Now that's a fairly unpopular thing to tell a group of people who I know right now, none of you think you're going to die anytime soon. At all. There's a million products and prescriptions to convince you you're not going to die anytime soon. And if you do, someone should sue for because it was wrong, right? Something went awry. When I'm here to tell you, the unpopular thing is like, that's the one thing I know is going to happen to you. The one, I have no idea anything else is going to happen. I promise you at some point, you will stop living. 
I love old churches. We had what we call memento mores, and so we've outsourced many, many important things that help us that feed our joy in the gospel. And one of them, for example, when uh, before before we kind of outsource this to 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 the state, and we outsource this to funeral homes, most church houses had in front of it what a cemetery. And you, you're like, right? I mean, again, if, if you're on that that one side of like, why are you so sad? Like, you, you would hate that place, right? Like. Let's try out that church. There's a bunch of dead people in front of that church. Right? I don't know what, and you'd be like, ah. But here's the cool part. This is the irony, um, even, though that's ha- even though that's no longer the case. As you drive out of here, if you turn left, God help you if you try to turn left, go to the light. <laughs> but if you were to do that, if you, were, if you were to do that, as soon as you go east of here, what's on your left-hand side? Hills and hills a reminder of this truth. Our time is borrowed. It's said that Martin Luther had two days on his calendar. This day and that day. And unless you think about that day, that one day when all these other days come to an end, this day means nothing. So he says, look, save me. Time is passing. You know this, right? I mean, like, for some of you, like, didn't this year or this semester, it isn't always the case that like this year, this semester, it like, went fast, right? Like, where did the time go? And so he's, that's why he said, like, look, this is going to end. I'm weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my, be- with my bed with tears. I drench my couch in weeping. Now hang on for a minute. Before we turn the corner in this particular psalm and end on the victorious declaration beginning in verse 8, This is for some of you. Do you are you annoyed by people's tears? Do you think people are weak when they weep and cry? It's important because you're saying God isn't good and the way he designed you is bad. And we are not Platonists. We are not Stoic philosophers. We believe that we are embodied souls who bear the image of God in all its expressions whether it's in sadness, sorrow, surprise, anger, hope. And so, just just so you know, if if you look at a person who's weeping and you're paralyzed, I don't know what to do with this crying person, and you think, and you would use a word that we would call, we we would use the word pathetic, word pathos, just means suffering or emotion. So a person who is pathetic, we use that word like, that that coffee's pathetic, right? That's like it's bad. But the word pathetic literally means driven or controlled by emotion. And just realize, when you look down on a person and despair, they're weeping because they're somehow driven to sadness, just recognize you're just as pathetic. It's just that you're being driven by happiness. Right? They may not know what to do in the world without being sad, but don't miss, you're just as pathetic. You're just as overwhelmed, and you're just as in denial of God's creation when you say, like, no, no, I must be happy or hopeful. You're just running to and driven by different emotions. Now, God, in his mercy, calls us together in the psalm here, but in a congregation to go like, hey, just so you know, Debbie Downer, you're not the end-all, be-all be of the world, and you, like, you know, happy-go-lucky person, you're not the end-all. You need one another. Like, this is a complete body that comes together to go, oh, this, this, this is to help me understand what God means to reveal to us in a human experience. Just beware. Easy, again, in a say-cheese culture to... Hear someone weep and hear someone who's, did you, I love that. Have you ever been there? Listen to the way he describes that, how poetic. Like, have you ever been to a spot where you're like, I'm crying, I don't know if I can stop crying. I don't know. 
Because the psalmist seems to imply here, if you don't know what that's like, here's what I would push on you. You've never actually beheld your sin. You've never actually seen the weight and cost of your own sin. And you're running to happiness all the time is fear. Because you know if you were to stop and look in the mirror and see the depths of your own sin, again, penitent, repentant, it would crush you. Friend, don't, don't miss. We're called to see the depths of our sin and weep and mourn over it. Verse 8. Strange twist. Goes from, woe is me, to all of a sudden, he's defiant. He starts... So this is what we don't know. We don't know if this psalm is exclusively about physical health or exclusively about his remorse over sin or if he's feeling the weight of all of his, like people actually trying to kill him. We see in the previous psalms there's something pretty amazing going on, right? Uh, Psalm 2 and Psalm 3, there's a picture of, of David and because of his sin, what happens? His son starts to rebel against him and stages a coup to kill him. Now I don't know what kind of mess you had at your Thanksgiving table with your crazy family, But unless you tried to kill your father or maybe your sons tried to kill you, you don't quite know exactly what David's feeling. When he says, my enemies are after me, these workers of evil are after me, he's saying, like, the people I loved the most are trying to kill me. Side note here, did you notice where he usually goes to? He says, I'm I'm weary with, with mourning, and every night I flood my bed with tears. It's really interesting. The Lord will often take you to the place of your greatest sin and failure to bring about the greatest victory. And by the time this psalm would have been written, who would have been under who knows what terms invited to this bed? As Matthew calls her, the wife of Uriah. That is the wife of the one that he murdered. Notice where he weeps. It's a special place for him, isn't it? Reminds him of probably a deep and dark place. And then he turns and he says, now depart from me, all you workers of evil. Why? Why would he all of a sudden be defiant and have a victorious tone? Why? Because the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord's heard my plea. The Lord has ex- he accepts my prayer. And now all my enemies, they're the one that's going to be ashamed. They're the one that's going to be troubled. They're the ones who'll be turned back. And then they'll be put to shame in an instant, in a moment. And even though God brings us to the place of our greatest weakness, when we admit it, when we see it, when we confess and are honest about our own weariness, something amazing happens. And we're called to do what? We're called to look to the victory that comes from the Lord. Why? Because the Lord hears us. The Lord hears us. This is especially important for Christians because we believe that sin has separated us from God. And the despair we feel is because of the things that we've done that that leave us alienated from God. And yet what? God has, being rich in mercy, has sent His Son to reopen the lines of communication. He is our intercessor. He is now at the right hand of the Father for Christians who by faith, now He is pleading with the Father for our good. The lines of communication have been re-established. Why? Because we're awesome? No, but because He is merciful. And He hears the sounds of our weeping. And When you know that the Lord hears you, when you know that the Lord is for you, what are you, 8, 9, and 10, He becomes defiant. He becomes declaring the victory that comes from the Lord. Now, I want to stop for just a moment here before we wrap up. Christians, 
always identify with the sinner in the story, not the hero. So for some of you, maybe this psalm puts to words and articulates deep sorrow and deep joy that, that we all need to hear. But a, a friend of mine described this as what he calls Disney princess theology. It's the belief that every, like every time you watch a Disney princess movie, you're meant to identify with the hero. Identify with the princess. Oh, I know what that feels like. I suffer and I'm victorious. But I, I want to take this very seriously. If we're going to be good at this, One of the things we have to consider is that you may not be the hero. You may need to, instead of identifying with the suffering person, you might have to admit, confess, and repent of being the cause of suffering. For many of you today, like, you don't need to lament the suffering you might feel right now as much as you need to admit and lament the suffering that you've caused. And for you, maybe you need to think about, like, who's sitting around right now Who's sitting around right now writing this kind of poem because of you and your sin? And for you, it won't do you any good to put yourself in the place of the writer of this psalm. It might be more fitting for you to consider the suffering that you might have caused. You see, it's good to recognize that we have a lot of work to do here. And maybe simply to ask for grace in places where we have not shown grace is the way to show great care for people who are suffering. Maybe it's just to commit to being more aware of the suffering and its root causes and even to admit how often we cause it. No one ever wants to identify with the antagonist, right? When he says, like, you workers of evil, right? my enemies are going to be put to shame. No one goes like, oh, shoot, that's me. And yet for most of us, that's, that's really the call to repentance, Right? Who are the people that in the wake of your, self, of your self-absorption write psalms to the Lord because of the pain you've caused? And for some of you, it may mean that today you just consider you might need by this inspired psalm to write your own poem and repent. Maybe you need to go to a person and confess in an unqualified manner and then ask forgiveness, knowing they probably won't give it to you. See, Christians always identify with the sinner in the story, not the hero. Here's what I would ask then. May we be a people where feelings of sadness are welcome and feelings of defeat are unwelcome. So I'm both here, right? May we be a group of people where sorrow and sadness is welcome. The way I would describe this, some of you, I won't try to look anyone in the eye, but some of you know this. One of the most important things that you can do is to just ask the same question twice, Right? For some of you, I can think of even this moment, I go like, hey, how are you doing? Good, fine. And some of you hate me for this, I know, but I go, how are you doing? Really? And maybe we should just be, like, accept the call to be a group of people who take sorrow seriously. Why? Because we know that Jesus had suffered and experienced greatest sorrow on our behalf. And we weep with those who weep. But on the other hand, while feelings of sadness are welcome, feelings of defeat are not. Look where he finishes. The Lord hears you. Your cries are not in vain. So again, why would I diminish your weeping if I know that the Lord hears you? And if I know the Lord hears you, then we're invited to say, well, if he hears us, then what must be true? If he's heard our prayer, if he's accepted our pleas, then ultimately his enemy, like the enemies of us, the enemies of him will be ashamed and will be put to death. 
Here's the New Testament expression of this, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What's that treasure? He says it's a profession of faith in Jesus. To show what? That we're awesome and we deserve merit? No. To show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. Because we're awesome and doing well? No. We are afflicted in every, every, Paul? Every, every way. But we're not crushed. We're perplexed, right? (laughs) Some of you are like, yes. Very confused. (laughs) What do I do next, right? Perplexed, but what? But we're not driven to despair, We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken, not abandoned by the Father. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life is at work in us. And you, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so also we speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his very presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So therefore what? We do not lose heart. Listen to this, maybe the prayer for some of you. Though our outer self is wasting away. Right? He's not saying like, suck it up. Things are No, you, you, it may be worse than you think. And yet what? Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient. That is, they go away. But the things that are unseen, that is, the grace of God in Christ lasts forever. Maybe we'd be a people that welcome sadness, but are very, we very much do not welcome defeat because of the victory in Christ. So what is this psalm about? Is it about forgiveness? Is it about physical healing? Is it about victory over our enemies? Which is it? Let me rephrase it this way. Does God forgive sin and hold back his wrath? Does God heal physical brokenness? Does God destroy our enemies? And the answer is yes. The Lord is our source of forgiveness, the source of our healing and victory. So friend, appeal to God's mercy. Ask him for restoration and healing. Declare the victory of the Lord eternally over all your enemies because you know the prayer of this psalm is heard. That prayer has been heard and it has been answered and Jesus is victorious. Christ has heard you and cares for your forgiveness. So now he says from the cross, what? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. He's heard our call for restoration. So from the cross, what does he say? It's finished. And he's declared victory over our enemies. And we have an empty tomb to prove it. Jesus has borne the weight of sin. He has borne the weight of physical suffering. And now he has taken the blows from the enemy. And then he has been raised up victorious over all three. Sin, death, and the grave. Let's pray. God, we thank you for King David. Uh, We thank you not because he's the hero, but he is a great appetizer for the hero that is Jesus. I thank you so much that 
He wrote this under the inspiration of your spirit that for those of us in this room, we might have comfort and challenge. Maybe for some of us that we're feeling despair because of our sadness, would you, would you even now comfort the people in this room and recognize they have permission to experience sorrow? They have permission not to minimize it, but they have permission to cry out to you and ask for help and beg you to relent and beg you to deliver. Pray that you would give people courage to do that. Maybe for some of it's just the first time in their whole life. They've Maybe you would give some people here the ability to weep over their sin and weep over their sorrow. But for some of us also, maybe, maybe we're, we're driven to despair and weeping over our sorrow is our MO. Maybe today you would invite them to experience a taste of the victory that we now have in Christ. That this sorrow we experience is fleeting. And there is a resurrection Sunday coming. Lord, if there's some in this room, maybe that they wouldn't even call themselves Christians or believers, I thank you for bringing them here. Uh, may they be invited into something truly deep and powerful, something truly serious, not something superficial and silly, but something that calls us to a deep awareness of what's really broken, of what's really hurting, and yet offers a deep and serious solution, the grace of God in Christ. May today we profess faith. May we look to you and experience not just sorrow, but sorrow that's not in vain, a sorrow that leads to a resurrection victory. I thank you that the answered prayer of this psalmist is a gift we now receive in Jesus Christ. Amen.